welcome to the 19th episode of the 39A podcast. This is Shivani Misra from Project 39A, a criminal justice initiative based out of the National Law University in Delhi. The Supreme Court recently in Vijay Madan Lal Chaudhary versus Union of India upheld provisions of the Prevention of Money Laundering Act or the PMLA. The idea behind enacting the PMLA in 2002 was to uphold India's international commitments in addressing the global issue of money laundering. The PMLA creates special procedures for investigation which are distinct from the Code of Criminal Procedure. Investigations under the Act are carried out by a specialized agency known as the Enforcement Directorate or the ED. In around 80 petitions various provisions of the PMLA were challenged as being excessive and violative of constitutional safeguards therefore what was at stake before the court was the balance of individual rights and state power these needed to be interpreted in the backdrop of long standing jurisprudence of the supreme court on these individual rights today we have senior advocate mr aman lekhi with us to explain the implications of the judgment So one of the provisions that was under challenge was the very definition of money laundering without going into the nuances of the definition broadly speaking section 3 of the PMLA states that whosoever directly or indirectly is involved in any process or activity connected with proceeds of crime and projecting it as untainted property shall be guilty of the offense of money laundering so could you speak a little as to what the court has stated is the offense of money laundering and what are the key ingredients that constitute this offense well uh, in any interpretation the arrangements of words and phrases and the structure of the statement is of material importance and uh, i feel uh, while constraining section 3 uh, certain relevant aspects have been overlooked to give section 3 a meaning which is not uh, strictly speaking uh, flowing from the terms in which section 3 is drafted the focus of the court has been on holding that possession simpliciter can attract defense of money laundering to suggest that the projection or claiming the proceeds of crime to be untainted is not a necessary ingredient to complete the offense i personally feel that uh, this reasoning is uh, flawed and uh, i have a few uh, reasons for so saying one uh, what i feel has not been given adequate importance is uh, the use of two different conjunctions or an and now one is uh, disjunctive the other is conjunctive and because or and and have both been consciously used that means uh, the legislature knew the meaning of what or and and is and deliberately used and having used or the meaning that the legislature intended to give and could not be or firstly sorry to interrupt you here could we just maybe read out that portion of the uh, section where the and and the or uh, appear just for the benefit of our listeners so the section says uh, proceeds of crime including its concealment comma possession comma acquisition or use and projecting or claiming Right. So what you will find is there are two or and an and, right. or and and are conjunctions. That means the legislature is aware of the rules of grammar, presumed to be aware of the rules of grammar, and the court should defer to the understanding being correct. 
So when and and or is both used, which is not which is not the case in Sanjay Dutt's case, I'll come to that later on which reliance is placed. You cannot easily give the meaning, the word and meaning or, because in any case, uh, even where this is warranted, it is only where the meaning is otherwise unintelligible, where you give and a meaning different from a natural meaning, so as to make it consistent with the objective behind section 3, which is not made out over here. So, as I said, one, and and or are both used and being so used to say that and should be used in or is inappropriate. Number two, in reaching the conclusion, the court was heavily influenced by conventions. Now, when you are influenced by conventions, the conventions may have a role to play in interpretation, but conventions do not in any way rule the interpretation. They are aids to interpretation. Even the conventions as such re recognize that the domestic law will prevail. That is the understanding of domestic law will actually prevail. And when the wording of a statute is clear, a meaning different from the ordinary meaning cannot be ascribed to it by reliance upon conventions. So the question of conventions warranting it, in my opinion, again, is not, uh, is not in any way uh, uh, warranted here. The court was influenced by Sanjay Dutt's case, which is one of the many cases where uh, the court had used and as or, but the context is very different because in that sense, the structure, and I said in the beginning, the structure may warrant a particular meaning, but the meaning which is relevant for one structure may not be necessarily relevant for another structure. And the structure of section three of PMLA is different from five of Tata, right. which was the being construed in Sanjay Dutt. And to import the reasoning without noticing the difference is, in my opinion, was something which could be avoided because no one can dispute that or and and have been used as and and or. But the question was, there warrant for that? And I don't think there was warrant because the meaning which Section 3 naturally gives is that the activities which have been mentioned by themselves will not constitute money laundering until there is projecting and claiming, which flows from the natural construction of Section 3. Now, having, in my opinion, not correctly interpreted 3, the job of the court became very simple by saying the explanation is consistent with the substantive provision. Right. Just to give a little more context here. So this explanation is now added in 2019. So do you think this explanation to some extent contradicts the main uh, part of Absolutely. the section? A absolutely. An explanation normally elucidates, but an explanation can never alter. And the purpose of explanation is to address an obscurity. And obscurity doesn't necessarily mean an interpretation which may be hostile to the way in which a reader may be wanting that section to be read. Now, mainly because you would want a section to be read in a particular way would not necessarily make your want the meaning unless the section has that meaning. And the problem which has happened over here is the want is substituted by the meaning to give the explanation, to make the explanation mirror the want and not the meaning. Now, what has happened over here is those intending to enforce three may be wanting possession simpliciter. But their wanting possession simpliciter to be money laundering will not make it money laundering unless it is coupled with projection. Now, when the statute mandates coupling, which is use the word and, which is the conjunction that is used distinct from or, another conjunction, 
to have an explanation given artificial meaning to the natural meaning of it defies the very purpose of the explanation and for this reason the whole the reasoning is simple where the explanation is concerned because they've interpreted the substantive provision to read and as or that makes the job of actually construing the explanation rather simple because then you construed the section in the light of the explanation when in fact you have to first construe and notice the fact that this is a 2019 amendment now 2019 amendment subject to judicial review the question is is the explanation valid you cannot assume that what is styled as an explanation is in fact an explanation because while being styled an explanation it may not be an explanation because it is contrary to substantive terms so this had to be addressed first whether it's an explanation at all rather than to be addressed later by reading 3 to mean to read and as or in my opinion the way 3 stands without the projection of claiming of money laundering cannot be made out and to the extent the explanation says that the projection claiming it's also disjunctive is doing violence with 3 right thank you uh, so much sir so just just one small follow up question on this now when we say that right now as it stands maybe it'll be construed that possession is enough um would this take away from the intention element that the crime should have that the offense of money laundering should have you see intention has to be read into it again possession has to be for the purposes of the objective of the act and uh, so you cannot the first principle is unless uh, the uh, the expression so warrant intent is implicit uh, actus non facitri omnis mensitria that is the principle which is which is uh, which is usually uh, applied in this case so it's not a my problem is not that because that will yet be my problem is a more troubling one which troubles me more is the use of the word policy you see now now uh, i i think uh, there has to be a bit of restraint in the way in which uh, uh, important legal questions are in fact articulated uh to give a, a broad path uh, by relying upon policy uh, to interpret pedal provisions expansively uh will in my opinion violate substantive due process because uh it will uh, inject into the interpretive process things which will fall foul of article 21 there are certain principles which are normally applicable to interpretation of penal statutes one when it is settled that if the meaning is clear then policy is relevant two the question of policy or which can should be I mean should not be used policy should be objective will become relevant when it is open to a broad and a liberal construction uh and it is not there is no indication as to which of the two in which again the policy of law would be to give the narrow construction three there may be ambiguity but there may indication that there has to be a broader broader construction that means indication again in the statute nothing to do with policy every time you're looking at the objective this policy in my policy doesn't this policy doesn't come policy is a different issue like you make something wrong to make money laundering an offense the question of policy but what constitutes money laundering is not a policy what constitutes money laundering is goes to statute so to say it's a question of policy is again wrong because it offends principles that are relevant to interpretation so one as you very correctly pointed out i do not think that intention is relevant i think intention has to be uh, uh, has to be uh, in any case inferred and read into this particular provision and two to use policy for the purposes of uh, overbreath 
will fall foul of many known principles of uh, statutory construction dating to penal statutes right uh, thank you thank you sir so sir when we are on this policy question um, can now uh, any offense be added to the scheduled uh, to uh, as a predicate offense so as we know money laundering is a unique offense defined under the prevention of money laundering act and there is a schedule which lays down predicate offenses so does this overbreadth also extend to the uh, uh, offenses which may be added to the schedule now or do you think there should be a gravity threshold considering that so much importance has been placed in the uh, judgment on uh, how severe this uh, offense of money laundering is and how much of a menace it is uh, should there be a proportionality in deciding what offenses meet the threshold of being a predicate offense for money laundering well that's not an easy uh, it, it's interesting question not uh, not an easy one to answer because it's it's not uh, it's not open to uh, uh, uh very easy speculation depends upon the choice actually the question is if you look at the scheme of the act there has to be a scheduled offense there has to be proceeds of crime and there has to be money laundering now uh it is from for the government to decide as to what is the nature of the activity which is generating proceeds of crime as to warrant section 3 that is the offense of money laundering to come into play uh the check is not what should be in the schedule the check has to be what is to be read as money laundering and my problem today is the way in which the definition section has been read because uh, even if you add to or uh, 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 delete from the schedule uh, any offense if money laundering itself is construed more expansively than the limits within 3 is drafted then the schedule is irrelevant because through 3 that is the offense of money laundering you will make offenses not within the statute offenses and that is what i think should be a primary concern and uh, the ease with which you construe definition clauses uh, to rope in acts strictly speaking not within the terms of the provision is something we have to warn ourselves against because that will put in jeopardy uh, the whole structure of liberty uh, around which laws are actually based to protect which laws are in place and for purpose of which courts have been courts have been uh, uh, entrusted the responsibility of interpretation right thank you thank you so much sir so uh, i'll just uh, take you i'll just dump through a few of the things that were held in the uh, judgment and take you straight to the uh, reverse onus clause uh, that is under section uh, 24 of the act so uh, section 24 talks about burden of proof and it says uh in any proceeding relating to proceeds of crimes uh, under this act in the case of a person charged with the offence of money laundering under section 3 the authority or the court shall unless the contrary is proved presume that such proceeds of crime are involved in money laundering and b in the case of any other person than any other person that would be any other person who's not being charged of an offence uh, the authority or the court may presume that such proceeds of crime are involved in money laundering so 
this is now it seems to attack uh, the presumption of innocence which is one of the foundational tenets of criminal law now the idea behind presumption of innocence is also this long standing idea to balance the unequal power distribution where an individual is uh, facing trial against the might of the state however many statutes have a reverse onus reverse burden clause so sir could you speak a little on the reverse onus clause under the pmla and uh, in your opinion uh, is this a proportionate interference with article 21 and just also on how the court has interacted with uh, this question well reverse burden is not unknown to law and uh, even wilmington has noticed statutory exceptions of course from other categories uh however merely because you can detract from it doesn't actually mean that uh, you can easily move away from it because uh, as you very correctly mentioned uh, presumption of innocence is a fundamental tenet when uh, the movement away from this fundamental tenet uh, should take place uh, depends upon several factors and uh, unfortunately while uh, to some extent i i am in agreement with what has been spoken i i have my uh, reservation about the way in which it is expressed because uh, the judgment doesn't spell out in my opinion clearly uh, what is very relevant for the purposes of reverse burden of proof uh, why i say so uh, there is always a difference between uh, evidential burden and legal burden and i personally feel that uh, the court of course you can read between the lines to say that the burden has been understood as the evidential burden not the legal burden the court should have been absolutely explicit in setting this out which it it hasn't uh, and the purpose of the apex court the supreme court uh, dealing with matters of substance like this necessarily warrants clarity in exposition because then this is a law for all for all time to come and it is binding and clarity Uh, of law is one of the basic attributes of uh, uh, rule of law uh, the ambiguity detracts from the birth of a judgment but that said uh, what i want to say is that as far as reverse burden is concerned the requirement should be one uh, what is the offense nature of the offense uh, where reverse burden is uh, sought to be imposed two uh, whether the accused on whom the burden is placed is in a position to discharge that burden uh 3 uh is that the burden of the offence as such of a on element of an offence because this is also this is also very very relevant and for in totality what you correctly mentioned uh is it a proportionate uh, uh imposition by law uh with the legal process as as to render the method reasonable within the meaning of what menka gandhi interpreted 21 as ideally all these factors should have been part of this particular judgment uh, and then the interpretation of 24 should have been around around these factors which have given it conceptual clarity uh, uh, but uh, i don't find that uh, as i said in so far as the legal and the evidential burden and the aspects are concerned i don't find that present in this judgment what makes things worse the third aspect uh, the meaning which has been placed on the word charge in 24 now charge is used many times in statutes not as order framing charge charge is used as an accusation and 24 means when it uses the word 
charge doesn't mean charge meaning of an order on charge by a court, but means one who's accused. Now the reasoning, strangely, after correctly saying, I would say that correctly that yes, reverse burden is permissible, and this should be evidential burden which is reasonable. After correctly saying, it then goes on to this aspect of charge. Now this charge is a troublesome thing. It's very useful for those accused of money laundering. I'll come to that in a minute, but I'm talking about how it is conceptually wrong. Uh, because the word used is charge, it justify reverse burden on the basis of 106 of the Evidence Act, saying that the the material would be with the accused to rebut the assumption because the prosecution discharged the onus by placing enough material for a court to frame charge. This is a completely wrong interpretation of 24 for two reasons. Uh, one. charge is not used in sense of order framing charge for that reason using 106 in the sense it is used is also consequentially incorrect third and this will actually work to the benefit of those who accused if this is the meaning of 24 then for proceedings under section 5 and section 8 24 may not be available to the prosecution for invocation because charge may not even a complaint would may not have been filed so there is no question of framing of charge so that's the is the court saying that for 5 and 8 24 is not applicable to prosecution that will be a natural sequitur for for that to happen which is left which is left completely unaddressed uh, in this in this particular uh, case and for when i i mean if you have a question on 45 and 50 i'll deal with that later this will have a bearing also on how 45 and 50 will play now this is one of the issues which i find lacking the judgment because a statute is always construed as a whole a statute is never have will never have isolated silos that's why your principle of excessive actus so when you interpret the statute and you deal with the virus while dealing with individual provision it is obligatory to see the consequence of that interpretation of other provisions and then present a picture dealing with the act as a whole what i find lacking in this judgment is this linkage or interlinkage because whether PMLA is intravirus or not? What has to be seen is how it has to be construed in totality, which is again uh, absent over here. So just to summarize, one, it's not in every case that reversal of burden is unconstitutional. To decide upon unconstitutionality, the four or five factors I pointed out have to be relevant. Twenty-four had to be tested in that context. Twenty-four is not so tested in that context. 24 is not dealing with the distinction between legal and evidential burden directly and to the extent the court reads 24 to mean charge the court in my opinion misdirects itself right on this point that you had mentioned about the interaction of uh, various provisions of the uh, of the of the act i'll just take you now to this most contested provision which is the uh, twin conditions of bail uh now sir um, in the judgment of nikesh tarachand uh the a, a small aspect of the uh, of the twin conditions was under challenge which is the reference to predicate offense which was in the previous version of the section and then an amendment uh was uh, introduced and the section in its current form uh, was uh, formulated so sir what would you say is the effect of 
द जजमेंट ऑफ निकेश तारा चंद ऑन हाउ द बेल कंडीशन है Reliance on Nikesh Chachan was a uh, too simplistic an argument to have been taken, which is it gave an opportunity to the court to deal with this particular issue rather differently from what it what it should have. Now, see what is missed is, and again, it's very unfortunate it's not been so presented. What is missed is this is pre-trial detention. Now, pre-trial detention goes to procedural due process. Now, when it goes to procedural due process, twenty-one comes in. When twenty-one comes in, you have to see what is the ingredients of this procedural due process. Now the ingredients of procedural due process become very relevant because forty-five is premised upon guilt. Now, how do you disprove it? Now, for the purpose of disproving it, there are various factors. What normally would happen is a: is there an opportunity with the person to lead evidence for the purposes of showing that see this is unwarranted? Now, normally what happens is even at the state of charge, you cannot bring in any evidence. Say okay, you are going to come at the time of trial, bring evidence over there, right? Forty-five doesn't have that particular provision that you can actually bring evidence for this particular purpose. Number two, what are the statutorily enumerated factors which a court has to take into account on the basis of the material which is over there for it to conclude that this the test is satisfied as far as forty-five is concerned? Because that goes to the subjective opinion of the court, but a subjective opinion of the court which is unchecked by any standards to review it. Right. Now, when it is unchecked by standard to review it, it goes to the complete discretion of the court to decide one way or the other. Now, the discretion of the court to decide one way or the other may be an impression which is the court, but you cannot conclude matters on the basis of impressions or mere subjective opinion because the check on that opinion is the restraint of law and the standard which is absent altogether. Now, there is no standard to control discretion, and there is no option to prove innocence. On what basis? Forty-five work. Whatever Nikesh Rajan may say, what Nikesh Rajan said. Now the the whole ob- object was see. This is another judgment. I, this approach is wrong. We have to. Pre- we have in this today. We go too much by judgments. Okay, let's find a judgment. Find the judgment. We are not to go by judgments. We have to go by concepts. We have to go by principles. And when you deal with a provision, you have to go to the principles on which the provision is based. Because if the principles are violated, no judgment will bind you. And the Supreme Court, Supreme Court is not bound by itself. So you can show to the Supreme Court that the principle is absent. Now, where forty-five is concerned, the test for the purposes of applicability of forty-five is absent. But more importantly, I have read in this particular judgment an argument of validation act. Now, validation act is used by the court to justify this, but this is not a validating act. This was a, this was a money bill. This was in the case of. Uh, 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 that which issue has been kept in any case at large uh, by the court. Now, validation act has its own discipline. It, it should be it should be brought about with the purpose of addressing what is actually a wrong. But in my opinion, to call it a validating act in is in is again not correct because I don't see because the court has kept that issue. Now we should keep the way of introducing the amendment at large and say we are not getting into it. And without getting into it yet, call it a validating act. You are validating something, the subject of which is still to be decided by uh, a seven-judge bench for the court. So, with that issue at large, to justify it on base basis is again, uh, in my opinion, not correct. Hmm. 
Right. So, sir, uh, just on this point that you were mentioning, so in uh, section 45, we see that um, the court needs to be satisfied that there are reasonable grounds to believe that the person is not guilty of such offense. Now, you pointed out that this might be more onerous and it gets to uh, the subjectivity of uh, and procedural due process. Right, sir. So, at this stage, also material evidence would be absent, is it not? You see, that is uh, this is this is uh, a problem. You see, that's the reason why. Uh, again, I mean, uh, I, uh, without sounding too critical, I, again, and I bring in the question of interconnection. This is where nineteen becomes very relevant. You see, now forty-five had to be read in the context of nineteen. Now, nineteen, in my opinion, is the most important provision in PMLA. Because you look at nineteen, nineteen is a complete departure from section forty on the CRPC, and makes arrest an exception, not the norm. Because it's easy to arrest under forty-one. On a suspicion of a cognizable offence, here it's not. You have to be satisfied of the guilt. That means you cannot arrest unless you are sure of the guilt. Now, for that particular purpose, now if you can't arrest, there's no question of bail. When will you? When will be forty-five come? The forty-five would be justified when nineteen has been subject to a preliminary review, and then it has said, "Let's see, nineteen was subject to preliminary reviews. The magistrate looked into, or the judge looked into at the time of remand." Or the court have looked into it at the time of 226. Therefore, there is some basis for dealing at the time of 45. The linkage. So you have to link 45 with 19, and then justify. Let's see, because of 1945 is justified, but it was not argued. Neither, neither it was not argued by anyone, and definitely not examined by the court. This link between 19 and 45. The problem with acts like PMLA is the reluctance of the courts of the first instance and the courts to review. to examine the material for its legal worth for the purposes of concluding whether the provisions are in fact attractive at all or not if 19 is correctly applied 45 would be unnecessary because in most cases arrest would be addressed right sir so but uh, the high arrest numbers then are slightly problematic the high arrest numbers that we you see, see that under is the pmla because, uh, you see the protection of our rights lies with the courts right uh, No matter how perfectly drafted the statute may be, uh, it can always be misinterpreted. Who will check the misinterpretation or misapplication? It's the courts, and I feel that the Supreme Court should have actually used 19. It had the Supreme Court say that we are upholding. We feel that 19 is a check. Arrest should not be routine. Difference between 41 is explicit, and for that reason, we feel with little cause interference and a few of the issues can be addressed. Much of the problem with PMLA would be addressed because all penal statutes, unfortunately, in this country, the worth of the penal statute as a tool is in the capacity to effect easy arrest. And if easy arrest is addressed, everything else would be automatically dealt with. Which is why the link between forty-five and nineteen was crucial and critical, and should actually have been explored and dealt with further by the court. uh thank you thank you so much sir uh so i'll now i'd like to draw your attention to section 50 of the pmla act now section 50 uh the challenge to section 50 of the pmla was based on the fact that uh, officers who are uh, conducting investigations under the pmla are police officers so that was the starting premise and therefore the statements made 
two such officers would be covered by section uh, 25 um, of the Indian Evidence Act and also uh, there would be an implication on uh, Article 20, uh, Clause 3. So, so the petitioners have heavily relied on uh, the judgment of uh, Tufan Singh, where a similar question pertaining to NDPS officers was being considered, and which I must point out to our listeners, uh, sir uh, had argued and argued very well. Uh, so, uh, I had argued and lost for his. <laughs> For reason, it should be subject matter separate podcast, but let's let's leave that. Yeah, <laughs> right. Now the court says uh, deals with this uh, question by saying uh, that the scheme of the NDPS Act was completely different, and uh, therefore it should not alight uh, should not be uh, a part of the PMLA scheme. And the PMLA scheme is distinct, and the NDPS provisions and the NDPS interpretation would therefore be uh, not a part of this. So, so what do you have to say about uh, this and this approach that has been well, taken? Well, uh, this at the outset, uh, maybe bias, whatever, but we'll uh, leave. Uh, I have my reservation about the fancy, but whatever that may be, not because I, I'd argue that matter, but uh, that's not, the question is, uh, uh, just like Nikesh Sajjan Shah, uh, as far as Tufan Singh is concerned, were not decisive of the matter. And this is, this is very, very, very important. And the overemphasis on 25, in my opinion, is also misplaced because apart from 25, no one knows this 24. So it's not necessary that uh, a person has to be a police officer for there to be protection because there's 24 yet of the Evidence Act, which will in any case cover any kind of uh, uh, imposition on a person as to extract statements, which detract from the voluntary nature of it. But that's that apart. Now, the few things which I feel, I feel I have reservations about this judgment. One, uh, to the extent it says that, see, uh, the inquiry is for the purpose of attachment. And uh, therefore, investigation is not the same as is understood in the CRPC. Uh, this does violence to the scheme of the Act because uh, it's quite obvious that there's prosecution in PMLA. I mean, you have, there's attachment, yes, right. but there's prosecution. And the material is for the purpose of prosecution too. Uh, so, and if it is for the purposes of prosecution, in that event, you can't simply say that uh, it doesn't have a penal element to it, unlike uh, NDPS, because NDPS is also punitive. So, I mean, there may be this distinction between NDPS and PMLA from this, for, for this reason, in my opinion, uh, is, in my opinion, uh, not correct. So you can't simply say that NDPS is for the penal provision, therefore Tufan Singh. Ideally, the court should have examined Tufan Singh uh, to see whether Tufan Singh is right or not. Uh, and uh, that would have made this judgment comprehensive because there are many aspects in Tufan Singh, which in my opinion are not correct, which required examination by the court. And this is an opportunity for the court to examine it. But uh, the court actually has chosen not to deal with the financing and that's a very detailed judgment and would require a fair amount of inquiry for the purpose of uh, distinguishing it from uh, from PMLA. This is number one. Number two, uh, you see, insofar as this question of 20 is concerned, we have to keep one thing, let's be, we have to be emotive about a few things, but we can't let our emotions rule our judgment because uh, either way, law is a casualty. Now, this, I just want to bring in a caveat over here. Now, uh, where, right, Again, self-incrimination is concerned. Uh, we have a, to have a nuanced understanding of that. And why, do, why, why I say you have to nuanced understanding? Because at play are two competing interests. One is the right of the prosecution to investigate. 
and the other is the protection of an accused uh, from being compelled to incriminate. Now, twenty will operate uh, over an area which will cover both relevance and incrimination, and to the extent the questions deal with relevance and not incrimination, they are outside twenty. Now, whether there is a transgression from relevant movement from relevance into incrimination. Would be a question of fact in each case. No one can anticipate that in the course of an examination, a question is being put will incriminate. Both the nature of the question, the kind of the offence, the circumstances have been asked, and all accumulatively help in deciding whether it's incriminating. Once it is incriminating, twenty will come in. But then, whether it is incriminating at all or not, will be the job of the court to see. At a time when the statement is used, like a disclosure statement, a disclosure statement is taken on record, but the disclosure statement is not admissible per se, and to the extent it's said by twenty-five, it is excluded, but to the extent linked to twenty-seven, it is included, and the court decides how it has to be used. So the same purpose would be even statements under fifty. Now statement number fifty, you can't interdict the statement. That forget the fancy, forget uh, forget police, forget it. Go on principles. Now when you go at principles, this is this is something you how you will construe it for the purposes of understanding. I don't find that ideally the Supreme Court should have examined twenty, looked at the history of twenty, looked at the judgment relevant to twenty, and looked very importantly to Nandini Satpati, because Nandini Satpati had upheld the right of the police to put questions. In a IPC offence, where there is 162 in any case is a bar, right? And so far as that aspect is concerned, a thing which is actually missed in PML altogether. But anyway, that's that, that's something different. So you cannot possibly you cannot possibly say that 50 as it is will infringe 20 because whether it will infringe 20 or not will be a question of determination by the court, and that by itself will not be uh, in in any way decisive. Or that particular matter. Thirdly, this distinction between police and the others to say that the appropriate authorities are not police, in my opinion, again is artificial and uh, doesn't in any way uh, doesn't in any way uh, accord with an understanding of what what it is. Of course, I have my own view about police because there are series of judgments. Just to for for the convenience of our listeners, they can be construed in three or four different ways. Police can be a policeman properly so called under the Indian Police Act. A policeman can be one expansively interpreted who's got the power to record a confession. A policeman may be one where the report which he files under one seventy three. Now there are various strands across judgments where there are different tests at different points of time which have been. Applied in a matter like this, the Supreme Court should have examined all those judgments, whether the Constitution Bench judgment or other judgments, to so call out the principle that would have been a comprehensive enunciation of who or what a policeman is, which is again uh, absent over here. So there have been opportunities here to clarify the law and explain it in an fair amount of detail to to remove the cobwebs in the interpretation, which I feel has been lost. 
Right, right. Thank you. Thank you so much, sir. So on this, uh, on this uh, uh, aspect of who a police officer is and the test that you were laying down, which also um, has been laid down by various constitution benches of uh, the Supreme Court, which is that uh, a police uh, would be considered to be somebody who has the power to file a final report. So, sir, do you think uh, this is a very hyper-technical approach or uh, uh, do you think that what the person is actually doing and what powers he's actually uh, exercising should be the true test? Uh, a difficult question, again, uh, will not be, uh, there will always be different opinions of it. Uh, the natural inclination of those who are going to be on the wrong side of the law is obviously to say that any person who can extort a confession is a policeman and not without not without reason because uh, that is in some day uh, in their understanding and assured protection against abuse. But what I want to answer that is that uh, while 25 is a complete bar, it's not as if, if someone who is not a police officer got the statement that be admissible as such because that can be excluded from consideration also. Uh, I feel uh, till of course a larger bench construes it the way in which the constitution benches are have, have dealt with this, drawing upon uh, earlier three-judge uh, benches of the Supreme Court, uh, and the history of Section 25. This is, again, um, I had tried to argue this uh, in Tufan Singh. Unfortunately, uh, the court has not dealt with this. Uh, Justice Banerjee has, of course, dealt to some extent with this. If you look at the history of 25, the word policeman in 25 is basically a person properly so-called and there are certain judgments of various high courts prior to independence, which have dealt with this aspect in detail. Ideally, ideally, uh, I would want this issue to be examined by a larger bench. Uh, now in the context also of the PMLA judgment to settle it for all times to come as to who actually constitutes a, a police officer, because at different points of time, different tests have come into play. Though I must tell you, in one of the judgments, I'm forgetting the name. It's the Railway Protection Police Force judgment. I'm forgetting the name of the judgment. Uh, the Supreme Court, noting Mr. the very famous R.K. Garg's submission, he had taken the very objection which you have taken right now. Let's see. I mean, they are doing everything virtually what a policeman does. So this distinction is artificial distinction. The Supreme Court had noticed it and then said that see we are bound by a constitution bench. So this is a very, very important question. Uh, but as I said, and the law as it stands, uh, not capable of an easy answer. And uh, ideally I would want, I, I would have wanted uh, this judgment to actually uh, exposit the law clearly, which it hasn't, uh, perhaps it was not considered necessary for this case. Uh, but at a, on a later occasion, this is a very interesting question which does, does require an answer and I, I, uh, I feel that uh, the law as it stands today, it has to be one police officer properly so called because this judgments whichever have been relied upon the police report aspect which we are mentioning are all premised on statutes where the relevant statutory provision had deemed them to be police officers. So the deeming provision as you know is a fiction. And when a fiction is created, the consequences follow. And because they're deemed to police officers in that event, the 173 principle comes in. But yes, it has got its problems. But uh, the law as it stands doesn't provide an easy answer, as I said. It's better that left to a larger bench for consideration. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, thank you so much for giving us your time. As always, it's been a great pleasure listening to you and learning from you. <laughs> <laughs>